Um, you guys, man, we are starting a new sermon series today through the book of Daniel, and I am so excited to be going through the book of Daniel. And um, uh, my encouragement to us, as we unpackage this wonderful book, it's an Old Testament, it's, a, it's, one, it's, it's, it's one of the prophets in the Bible, but it gives a narrative and then it gives some prophecies, and we're going to probably hover around a lot of the narrative that we're going to see here. But, man, I think this is a timely word for us. And so, will you jump on board with us? My encouragement is, like, as we're doing it on Sunday, don't let it just be something that we do on a Sunday. Like, read through the book on your spare time. It gets saturated. Marinate in the book of Daniel. And uh, we'll be more well-equipped together as we come on a Sunday morning and sit under the Word of God through the book of Daniel. Now, why are we doing Daniel right now? Why are we doing Daniel? I want to give us three reasons why I think particularly this book is going to be just, I mean, extravagant for us. You know, we don't want to go through a book just to learn information, right? And we can say, oh, this book is historical, and it happened a long time ago, and as Christians, we need to learn things about the Bible. We need to learn history. Yes, that is true, because What's that saying? History repeats itself. It has to. No one listens, right? And that is good for us as we're going through life, and we want to be able to glean from history. But as Christians, my encouragement to us this morning is not just to look at this book as informational. Um, I think here's three things I want us to understand. Number one is we need to be reminded of our identity as Christians, and the book of Daniel is really going to help us do that. So you're going to see here that Daniel... And a lot of people from Israel and his buddies, they were probably teenagers when this was first written. Maybe Daniel was about 14, 15 years old. And he lived in a nation that reflected his values, understanding who God was. And all of a sudden, he is placed into a circumstance that is totally turns him, up, turns him upside down. Everything he knows, everything he's been taught all of his understanding of who God is, what morality is, what salvation is, what sin is, what spirituality is, what relationships are, have been turned upside down. And his identity is under fire. You'll see this. And I think we are living in a similar time. Wouldn't you say that? Where maybe we've, you know, grew up in a certain culture, certain morals, all these things, and now we're feeling the confrontation of it. We're feeling it. And our identity as Christians, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, is being put to the test. And I want to say this with the utmost tenderness and encouragement this morning. You're going to find that you feel a lament because you are feeling otherly than the world. And I think what's happening right now for Christians is we're starting to recognize that this is not our home. Anyone feel that way? I think more than ever, the church has preached that, and we've understood it theoretically. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, I'm an alien, uh, so to speak. The, my, my home is heaven. But now it's starting to become like, oh, I get it. I understand that. And guess what, friends? That's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're feeling the lament of living in a world that is broken, and all the things that are evil are being called good, and things that are good are, are being called evil, that's God's means of grace to you to wake you up to see that your hope shouldn't be in this world, and that this isn't your home. 
And so like Daniel, you and I are exiles. We're sojourners. We're green card holders, so to speak, living in a time and a place that is not of this kingdom. And so I want to remind us of our identity as Christians. And that number one is that we're exiles. Number two, why are we going through the book of Daniel? It's because we need our idols exposed. Um, what, do you, what do you know is an idol in your life? Well, whenever you experience hardship or discomfort or anything that kind of puts your world topsy-turvy, how do you react? Normally, when things that we really like and we enjoy and we want and give us comfort, when they're taken away from us, we either react with anger, right? Dang it! Right? Uh, my, my reaction is frustration. And, and, and that's like for me, I know that this is an idol in my heart because I'm becoming frustrated because I can't control the situation. Some of us might be on the other side of that. It's fear. And anxiety, right? You feel, you, maybe you're, you're at night and you're wrestling in your bed and you're thinking about where did I leave this one thing and I having now in my, it's starting to invade my dreams and it's like, oh, you know, and, and you're feeling anxious or you're feeling fearful or what will I do? What will I say? And friends, that's because those things are idols in our life. And by God's grace to us, He wants to remove those idols. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Daniel that there's many times where Daniel will be confronted with a left or right kind of fork in the road moment. Am I going to make comfort my king or am I going to put the king of kings as my king? And so hopefully as we go through this book, there will be a revealing of idols that are in your life, okay? And number three, the last reason I think and the biggest reason is that we need to see God for who he truly is. For who he truly is. Now, if you've ever gone through the book of Daniel with a, with a church before, or maybe through a small group of people who are studying it, most of the time, the impetus, the push, the feel of it is, dare to be a Daniel, right? I mean, we were talking about, what do we call this sermon series? And we said, we're going to call it Brave. And I, you know, and then like Disney started coming to mind, all those kind of things. And then as... As I got, as I was studying this more, I thought, no, we shouldn't have called it Brave. Now we're going to stick with Brave because we already have graphics designed and all that kind of stuff, right? The word or graphics? Well, I think graphics went out this time. No, but I want to re- remind us where I think what the book of Daniel is going to do is remind us it's not about us being brave. It's not about us daring to be a Daniel. What it is, it's about us seeing God for who he truly is. And you're going to see that God is the hero every single chapter. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm probably, as a preacher, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be giving you the, the hook, right, the, the, before we get to the end of it. But that's what we're going to do, and we're going to do it every single week. We're going to see that God is the hero. It's not Daniel. You ever go through the book uh, in, in First and Second Samuel, and you see David and Goliath, right? And you hear a preacher say, there's a David inside you, and you need to slay your Goliaths if God will just unlock the potential that is within you. No! That is so opposite of what Scripture tells us. Actually, the reality is, God is David. Jesus is David. He's the one that picks up the stones and he hurls them at the giant, which is sin and death, and he has conquered that on our behalf when we couldn't do it. And we're going to see the similar story here in the book of Daniel 
that we are not supposed to like go out and be moralists and try to like live out our Christianity on our own power and strength because we know it's impossible. What we need to do is see God for who he truly is. Amen? All right. So those are the three things that I hope will keep thematically coming up as we go through the book of Daniel. And I'm asking you, if you can, to put on these lenses, the lenses of seeing God for who He truly is, the lenses of knowing that there's idols in our hearts, and lenses also of us wrestling with this identity crisis that we often feel as Christians, that we live in the world, but we're not of the world, right? And so that's how we're going to go. All right, you ready? Let's do it. Let's get into... Daniel chapter 1, that was longer than I expected to take on the introduction, but par for the course. Okay, now we're going to read all of Daniel chapter 1, so stick with us here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen. We also have Bibles kind of peppered around the auditorium here. Those are free for you to take, and this is what Daniel says, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of jail camp, jail that guy, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, I mean, I should have probably practiced that before, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate. And at the and and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called, and this is probably what we probably know more uh, popularly, is Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner. And he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. I don't know if that's like something we aim for today. This doesn't fly in year 2021. But 
So he listened to them in this manner, tested them for 10 days. In the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Ugh. Okay, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king, and the, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus for about 70 years. And we know that we see we can look at other testaments. Okay, whoa. A lot of, lot of scripture. What is going on here? What is God wanting to reveal to us this morning through the book of Daniel? If it's not just history that we just read through, if there's application for us as Christians to understand that our identity is in Christ and and in Christ, we're, we're exiles, and if well, we have to understand that there's idols, and then we've got to understand that we've got to see God for who He truly is. What is this chapter trying to help us see this morning? And I want to, even though we read the whole thing, I want us to come back to this very important thing that has to address, I think, the feels that we're feeling right now. And that is, if you again, look at verses 2 through 4. It says, And the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, I said it right, in the hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's just stop there for a moment. What are these vessels that the Bible's talking about? Well, these are like sacred artifacts, artifacts that um, Israel would stow away that represented a lot of their value. Uh, the values of who they were as a people. They had history attached to them of amazing things that God had done through the nation of Israel. And so what you see is Nebuchadnezzar, he comes, he sacks uh, Israel, he sacks Jerusalem, he takes it over, he besieges it, and while he does this, he takes their values, what they put their hope in and who they understand God, these things that represent truth and reality and morality and righteousness and values, all these things, and he takes them and he puts them in his place where, by his God. And it's a, it's a show of his kind of superiority over Israel. Now, I think, friends, that we are feeling this same thing. That our values, so to speak, our vessels, have been taken to Shinar. We, don't you feel it? You're feeling it in the atmosphere. You're feeling it if you're on social media at all. Every, I mean, get off social media. But most of it is like, so-and-so did this and it's terrible. And then so-and-so did this and it's terrible. And so-and-so did this and it's terrible. And the law is going this way and it's terrible. And the law is progressing this way and it's terrible. And, and churches are doing this and it's terrible. And Christianity is being redefined and it's terrible. And we're going, oh my gosh, God, what is going on in the world? Everything feels like it's been taken away from us. Our vessels, so to speak, have been hijacked. Everything that's right is being, called, is being called bad, and everything that's bad is being called good. What are we to do? It feels like we're out of control. It feels like we are exiles. It feels like we are foreigners. And I think that's true. 
Now, here's the temptation. We can feel like, man, these idols, so to speak, of my comfort are being taken from me. We can get all frustrated, and then we can try to fight fire with fire. I've done it. You get on Instagram or Facebook. Don't even be on Twitter. Don't even look at Twitter. Twitter is the worst place. It's just everybody like, I hate you. No, I hate you. Well, I hate you more than you hate me. No, that's not possible because I hate you the most. If there was hate, I would, it would be me and it would be against, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we, so what we try to do is say, well, I'm going to fight fire with fire and I'm going to get all angry, I'm going to get angsty, I'm going to get frustrated, I'm just going to let people know. If you're not on this side of the aisle or if you're not on this side of this moral issue, then you are scum and you're the worst person on the face of the planet, right? And we get all frustrated. Or we, or we could say, you know what? I'm out of here. Southern California is crazy. You can't afford a house. I mean, you want, like, whatever you're going to qualify, you know you're not going to qualify for the thing that's even in reality, right? And so you're going to spend, maybe you're never going to pay off your house in 30 years, and in 30 years your house, maybe, maybe it's worth more, maybe it's worth less, I don't know. I'm going to go move somewhere where people aren't insane, I'm going to move to Tennessee. Tennessee is where everybody wants to go. That's the promised land. The grass is greener in Tennessee. The grass is greener in... Where's everybody going? Uh, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, Arizona. Let's get out of this God-forsaken place. Right? Or what we do is we become fearful, we hide, we isolate ourselves, we forget our identity. Or maybe even worse, we start to acclimate and we start to go with the flow. We start to say things like, you know what? It's just for a season, right? It's just for a season. It's just for a little portion of time. Maybe one day God will come and He'll bring the Israelite people back into Jerusalem. Maybe the things that He's prophesied about, about 70 years being exiled. Maybe through His goodness and His grace, He'll just cut it short. And so what I'll do is I'll just kind of hold out and I'll just compromise until God comes through. You know, like, well, it's the law of the land now. You know, we'll just, we have to do this because that's the law of the land. So we'll just continue to give ourselves over to whatever the authorities say, even if it goes against the Word of God. We'll just do it for a little bit. And that's not what God's called us to do. See, yes, I think it is okay for us to rightly understand that our vessels, so to speak, have been taken to Shinar. That our values have been hijacked. That we're starting to see a degradation of society. There's no like, that's not brand, that's not news. We're all feeling it. But how we react as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, that should be informed by what? By what, friends? By our political standings? By um, whether we want to put our kids in public or private or homeschool, and that's how we're going to make every single decision for our life? I'm not saying either one of those are right or wrong. But if we do anything as a reaction out of our own flesh and of our own standing and it would say, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm Green Party or something. Does that even exist still? I don't know. Does, you know I, I'm going to make my decisions out of these things other than the truth of who God is. Then we are going to be in big trouble. And what we see here is Daniel doesn't do that. What does Daniel do? He stands firm. Now, I don't know why Daniel, out of all things, chooses 
not to eat vegetables or eat the meat, because I would have chose the meat, right? Meat over zucchini. You ever try to have zucchini squash, spaghetti? It is not the same thing. We tried to do this vegan diet, and Marianne's like, it's spaghetti. I'm like, that's not spaghetti. Anyways, but yes, everything feels like it's out of control. But we need to remember, here's the, here's, if we're going back to who God is, we've got to remember, friends, that God is sovereign. Now, look at this. It may have like, went over your head. This is what it says in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Jeho- Jeho- oh, screw this up, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. Who gave that? The Lord gave. What? You mean to tell me that God, in His sovereignty, in His omnipotence, in His all power, and Him being righteous and moral and good, is the one who allowed the vessels to be taken from Jerusalem? Is the one who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come and sack Jerusalem and take over Israel? That's what the Bible says. It was God who did that. What does that mean for us? You mean, so I think we can all say right now, the world is out of control. It's out of control. And I started thinking through that, through the sovereignty of who God is, and thinking through that through verse 2. Actually, the world is not out of control. Because God is in control of the world. Either God's in control, or He's not. And if you're saying God's not in control, then God's not God. Put that in your sandwich and eat it. Here's the, even though Nebuchadnezzar took credit for taking Jerusalem, it was God who allowed his victory. Now, I know that leaves us with a question of why in the world would God do such a thing, right? If God is good, and God's big, and He's in control, why would it allow these things to happen? Well, we see, if you know history, this was prophesied, and one of the reasons why this happened is because God came and He told and He warned the nation of Israel, listen, if you do not turn away from your sin... If you do not repent, if you do not worship me alone, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow kings to come and make you exiles. Because in your exile, in your lamenting of your vessels being taken to Shinar, what's going to happen is you're going to have to turn to me to see that I am God and you are not. And God in His grace and in His loving kindness for you and for me will not allow us to just rest in our sin and be happy all day just sinning. You see, if we're Christians, if we're disciples, if we're children of God, He disciplines us and He loves us. And sometimes things will happen in our lives to get our attention, to see that we need to cry out to God and say, God, the world feels like it's out of control. I want to move to Tennessee where nobody is mean and everybody does everything I like. And God goes, that's not going to win for you because there are going to be people in Tennessee who are just as crazy as Californians. (laughs) Will you turn your heart to me and see that I'm in control and see that I have a whole... Now, we could take... Here, friends, 
you've, you've heard me use this analogy before. We're walking a tightrope, right? And on, with when we walk a, a tightrope, you have to have this balance beam. And this balance beam is equally weighted on both sides. And as we walk down this metal cable across this chasm, we have to hold both truths in tension that God on the one side is completely sovereign and completely in control. Yes. But on the other side of that is that we see that God is equally good and loving. And so if we go, well, that's right, Kelly, God's totally in control and He's sovereign. And then we just hold on to that. We fall off this side and we become cynical and we start to get depressed and we start going, oh my gosh, what do I do if God's just only sovereign and He's only in control? But the truth is that while God is completely sovereign and can in control, He is good and He's loving. And He, he doesn't like diminish in one area of His character in order to strengthen the other part of his character. And then he waxes and wanes depending on how good you acted that day. See, God is always, always both sovereign and good. And if God is sovereign and good, then we who are feeling the craziness of our world, we can say, God, thank you that you are still in control, but that, that you're not just in control and you're grumpy and mad, that you're in control and that you're good and you're loving. What does Romans 8.28 say? The most quoted, one of the most quoted verses, that God works together all things for good for those who love Him. God works it together for good. So right now when we're looking at our situation, we can't get, get our eyes out of the wood of the trees, right? And we go, oh my gosh, what in the world? And then we step back and we read Romans 8.28. God is sovereign. God is good. And I start to put my hope and I start to put my security back in the truth of who God is. Not in the things that I thought would give me prosperity, would give me comfort, would give me security. Not in those things because they're gone in a moment. But in the one thing that will never ever be taken away from us and that is who God is. And so, friends, let's remind ourselves. We identify, yeah, our values are being taken away. But God, God is good. God is sovereign. God is in control. Stand firm. Look to Him for hope. Don't try to grasp for all these things that are getting taken away from you. Should we fight? Totally. And when I say fight, I mean like, should we stand up and say this is wrong and this is right? Absolutely. Do we declare truth? Yes. Can we even get involved in politics? Totally. But do we put our hope there? No. Never. Our hope is in who? God. How you guys doing? I'm not even, I don't even know what my notes are saying. Number two, we see here we're not meant to defile ourselves. What Daniel does, he, he takes this line in the, stand, uh, in the sand, he draws a line, and he doesn't defile himself. He doesn't give in to the king's wine and the food, no matter how sparkly and smelly good it was. And, and some commentators would say, well, that's because maybe the meat was sacrificed to idols, and as, as a Hebrew, as a Jewish person, you wouldn't eat meat sacrifice idols, but that, I don't know if it totally holds water because some of the vegetables would have been sacrificed idols. We were in Thailand, and we were staying in a hotel, and they have gods everywhere. If you don't know anything about Th Thailand, is a uh, pantheistic uh, culture, and they have thousands of gods, right? And there's a god of this, and if you have this problem, then you worship this god, and so we were in the hotel, and they had statues set up, and as a Westerner, 
never been to Thailand, you're not really sure. You just think, oh, because we see it at cost plus. Oh, a little Buddha. I'm going to put a Buddha in my house. That's going to make me feel so Eastern, right? No, see, they, they put a Buddha there, but they, this like represents their God. And so there was fruit, orange wedges or something set out. There were bananas, right? And one of the guys that was with us just walked up and go, oh, bananas. And he grabbed the bananas and started eating them. And we're like, Luke, Luke, that's offensive. You know, he's like, what? It's a banana. I thought they left it out for the guests. I'm like, no, that's like a sacrifice to their God. You're eating the sacrifice, right? And he's like, oh, try to eat it real quick. So the, the vegetable thing, I don't know, holds, holds water because fruit is sacrificed to idols. Vegetables are sacrificed to idols. But we know for sure that Daniel, for whatever the conscious reason, said, no, this is where I'm going to draw the line. And I think, friends, there's something about this that helps us understand that while we're in the world, we're not of it. And, and the, the Old Testament will talk a lot about things that defile us or things we do physically, things we put into our body. It defiles us. But we know on this side uh, of the New Testament and in Christ, we know that the, it's not the things that we eat that defile us. It's the things that come from our hearts that defile us. It's the things we allow into our minds and into our hearts and into our spirits that defile us. And I think this is a, a picture here that what it's trying to remind us is you can't control the world around you. You can't. You can't control the world around you. But what you can control and what you can submit your life to is the things that you see and the things that you hear and the things that you ascribe to and the things that you, you give yourself over to. And we see that Daniel stands strong. Now, what's going to happen as those of us who are in the world but not of the world is there's going to be this continued pressure on you as a Christian, as a disciple, to be transformed by this world. You feel it? it and if you don't, you're going to be, what, what's it, canceled? Is that what you say? You're going to be canceled. The pressure, and so you're going to feel it. Every single time that you think a certain way, you're going to be like, ooh, is it okay to think this? Every single time that you make a statement, ooh, Ooh, I know that's not what the world likes to hear right now. I'm going to get canceled. There is going to be this mounting pressure. Oh, you, you support this group of people? Oh, well, you're not very, like, woke. You don't understand what's going on in the world. You know, all of this kind of stuff is going to keep pushing on us continually. And as we see what Daniel does here, he draws this line in the sand, and he knows this pressure, and it comes so strong that the king even changes their names. I don't know if this dawned on you as we were reading this, but what is most identity about you is your name. Carries your most identity. My name means warrior of the king. Some of my friends try to, try to make fun of me and say it means warrior princess because Kelly's a girl's name. And I go, no, it doesn't. It's a Gaelic Irish name. We have friends that just went to Ireland. And if you look up Kelly, it means warrior of the king. So take that, all right? I don't know what Jeff means. Tall and handsome. That's what Jeff means. <laughs> but what you see here is the king changes their names. And I have these things here for us. Look at this. Daniel means God is my judge. He changes his name to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was one of the gods of Babylon. What a 180 in name. Hananiah, God has been gracious. He turns it into Shadrach. I am very feel, fearful of God. Not big G God. Babylon God. 
Mishael, which is where we get the name Michael. Who is like God? And that's not, it's a rhetorical question. It's like, who else is like God? No one. That's kind of what that name means. Look at this. Who is like Aku, Meshach, which is another God? Whoa, what's going on here? And Azariah, God helps to Abednego to servant of Nego, servant of another God. So what you have in this, you have this pressure coming from the outside. We're going to say, what the king does is he's going, give me all the best guys, right? Give me all the best guys. I'm going to make them my assets. And if they don't want to bow to our ways, let's attack the one thing that will get them, and that's their name, because that will attack their identity and their character. And if we keep calling them these names, they'll start to feel the pressure. They'll start to just acclimate into our culture. They'll start to like forget about the truth of who they were originally called, and they'll start to walk in our ways and our understanding in our values. And we're going to feel it. I guarantee that in this room, you have watched something this week that you might not have watched 10 years ago. Why? Because you started to get acclimated. I mean, there are things that we watch with our kids on Netflix, and I'm like, even the cartoons. And I'm like, Lord, please don't let certain, cert, certain things come up. And what happens? They do. And then I go, oh. And I remember the first three or four times we've seen this, with our, especially with our younger son. He's watching it, and he's like, what the heck is that? And then I have to explain, right? Now we see it, and he doesn't even ask anymore. Why? Because we just got used to it. It's in our culture. Friends, the enemy is going to come. He's going to try to attack us. He's going to go as far as to change our name. And you notice how some of the name change here is not even that different. Uh, like Mishael to Meshach. The world's just going to say, let's change a little bit of this here. This is really archaic, Christians. You don't really believe that. That was like 2,000 years ago. Come on. You're so... Get with the times. Just... Take away these truths of love, but change the definition of love. Love is love. Love is love. Not God is love. Love is love. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Love is love. Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't judge people who love people, because why would we judge love? Love is pure. All right. How are you guys doing? So, we don't defile ourselves. Let's go back to the truth of who God is. Why don't we defile ourselves? Why can we stand strong? Why can we draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to eat that. We're going to eat this. Because we know that when we are obedient to God, God will take care of the rest. God will take care of the rest. So, the things that you're worried about right now, the things... And I'm not talking about just things that you feel anxious about like your finance. I'm talking about the way the world is going and you know that you're supposed to draw a line in the sand. You know that you're supposed to live a life of purity. You're supposed to live a life that represents who God is, right? And those things that you want to compromise on because of the pressure that's coming upon you, either your family lifestyle, the choices you make at work, the things you say and do, all of those, the pressure that's coming upon you and the fear that is starting to well up in your heart or maybe the anger and the frustration that you're starting to react in and you're, you're saying, that's it, we're, look, we're moving. You know, all those kind of things. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to surrender all of that over to God because God is sovereign and He's good. 
And we know that when we do that, God is faithful to take care of the rest. Okay, let's look at it here. It says in verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Who gave favor? God, Ashley knows. God did it. God's the one who gave favor. You know, as well, you see here that they ate vegetables and water for however many days it was, and they looked better. That doesn't happen. That's not, I know churches like to do this thing called the Daniel diet. You know, if somebody asks, are we going to do the Daniel diet as we're going through the book of Daniel? And I'm like, no, you know, because I don't want to eat vegetables for 10 days. It wasn't because they ate vegetables that they looked all better. And God gave them this prescribed way to live. Actually, when you eat vegetables all the time, you start to look gaunt. You need some meat. Take that, vegetarians. Meat's good for you. God told Peter, kill and eat. It was God who intervened and made them look fatter. That was a good thing back then. Because it made, it made you look like, man, I got some nutrition available to me. My skin is all glowy. I look like all the good things. It wasn't because they followed some amazing diet. It's because God intervened. And you see that God intervenes in this relationship. And what we need to do, friends, is say, I will not defile myself. I am a vessel of God. I am God's and God's alone. And I will be obedient to Him and Him alone no matter how many friends leave me and defriend me on Facebook and Instagram and all my followers go away because I said I love Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus. What the heck? Unfollow. Don't need to see that. Trust God with the consequences of being fully obedient to Him. And when you are fully obedient to Him, I, I like to say, go to sleep like a Calvinist. That's probably not a helpful thing to say. Go to sleep as if God is sovereign. Put your head on the pillow and go, I was obedient. Good night. <laughs> See, what we do is we go to bed and go, if I'm obedient, uh, all this, all this is going to happen. God's just saying, listen, I was there with Daniel. I'm in control. I'm sovereign and good. Just trust me. Go to sleep. I'll take care of it. You can't even fix this anyway. I'm going to fix it for you. All right? Okay. Oh, man. Here's the thing. Where did I put that? Alistair Begg, in his book on Daniel, says this, and I want, this is probably the most important thing that we need to see this morning, is that there was another person who actually didn't defile himself perfectly. And that's Jesus. There was another person, see, again, you can hear this morning, Kelly's saying, dare to be a Daniel, don't defile yourself. Dare to be a Daniel, stand strong. No, we have to see, actually get our eyes off of ourselves, get our eyes on Jesus, get our eyes on God. This is what Alistair Begg says. As Daniel stands before the chief of the eunuchs and tells him that he has resolved that he will not defile himself with the king's food or with his wine, no matter what, we can see echoes of another man living in a far more, uh, far more hostile foreign land, standing before a far more powerful enemy and drawing his lines and refusing to move. 
After all, even if we can begin to wrap our heads around the sheer otherness of Babylon for the Jewish exiles, we are still nowhere near understanding the foreignness of this earth to the Lord Jesus when he left the glory of heaven and stepped down into the limitations of time and space and the difficulties of this broken world. He was willing to become one of us, to live in a world that was bent on resisting his father. But he was not willing to disobey even after 40 days alone in the wilderness. And this is what Luke says about Jesus. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. See, we have one who did this work for us. We have one who was tempted, just like us, the Bible says, in every way, just like us, but did not give in to that temptation, remained pure and holy, and didn't defy himself. Why? Because he just wanted to see how awesome he was? No. It's because of his awesomeness, because of his godness, Jesus fully God, that he was perfect on our behalf. Because, listen, we're going to face these things. We do. We feel them. We're feeling it right now. And the temptation to give in just for a little moment, it won't hurt anybody. No one will see. It won't affect anybody else. All those things we say to ourselves. Jesus stood across and He said, I will stand in the gap and I will do this perfectly. Because when I do this perfectly, I'm going to overcome it for you on your behalf. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stand in that gap for you because I know you're not going to do it perfectly and I'm the only one who can. And when you are struggling, when you're saying, Lord, I know I'm supposed to do this but my heart wants to go this way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to die a death that you deserve and then I'm going to be victorious over that death that you deserve and I'm going to be raised again three days later and I'm going to be show my power over those things that you wrestle with so that when you wrestle with them, I'm going to say I can give all authority to you and all power to you to be able to say, no, no, I'm not going to do this. Or yes, yes, Lord, I will be obedient. And it won't be based on your good morality. It won't be based on how effective you are as a person. It will be based on something I already did on your behalf 2,000 years ago because I know that this day was coming right here, right now, and I'm going to afford you the grace to live in it so that you will be perfect. And that you don't have to cross over that line. You'll stand your ground and say, I stand my ground because one has already stood it for me. I stand my ground. I'm secure because I'm not standing in my own strength. I'm standing in the strength of the grace that has been provided through me through Christ. Friends, you don't dare to be a Daniel and go, I could do this. I mean, yes, I want to encourage us this morning and go, come on! Come on! Let's, let's be other than the world. Come on, church, let's shine. Come on, let's be salt. Let's be light into the earth. Let's not let our lights be under a, ba- a basket, as Jesus said. We want to let it, boom, we're going to sing the song. And people are going to go, what in the world is up with those people? And we're going to go, Jesus! Yes, I want all of that. But not in our own strength. Not in the name of Southland's Chino. Not in the name of whatever it is in morality. We want to do it in the name of Jesus. That's 
who we are. We're a people who wants to make much of Jesus. And we make much of Jesus by saying, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want. Last thing. Here's what I want us to do, if we can, for the rest of this sermon series. And I'm going to have us say it every week. It's Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. It says this, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Can we all say that together? Where does it say that? Second half, it says, but the people. Let's just do the people. Here we go. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's say it again. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I hope you teach this to your kids. I would love us to say this every week. I would love this to be our mantra. I would love this to be our heart. And, and so that it goes from here to here and then from here out there. Daniel doesn't stand firm because he thinks he's amazing. They don't not defile themselves because they were really good little boys. No. See, they knew their God and they were able to stand firm, take action when they needed to. Let that be our story. Please, God. Amen? All right, let's stand together.